Hello and welcome to Troublesome Terps, the show about things that keep interpreters up at night. I am super duper excited about today's episode because it's with one of my favourite interpreting researchers. But first, we're still not back to full strength, but there we go. From Brussels, <laughs> he's the voice of Cam, he's the man who makes all of us sound even better, the voice of reason, Alexander Drexel. Thank you, Jonathan, and uh, good evening, everyone. It's it's really nice to be back after the little summer break we took. I hope you all uh, listened to our little summer update that we gave. Um, and uh, just to get the, the stuff out of the way, I'm uh, speaking here in a private capacity and not for my employer, just to get that out of the way. And with that, I'd like to welcome the other Alex uh, on tonight's panel because Sarah, unfortunately, can't join us. Uh, but uh, we say hello from here. Hi, Sarah. Um, Alex Gunsmeyer in Munich. Hello. How are you doing tonight? I am pretty well. Thank you very much for asking. It's it's great to be back. Um, as we discussed offline before, it's a bit weird taking a month off. It's very un, unusual to not have a full month of, of the troublesome Terps power. It's the rentrée des podcasts. <laughs> yeah, as it were. The, the, the end game, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> no, no, we're just the yeah, starter. But, we're the rentrée des podcasts. Entrée. <laughs> well... We start well, the main issue in, in the, the US, US game. it depends, yeah. Isn't anyway. it a starter? Isn't it an appetizer? <laughs> tell, tell us about the guests um, that you're no, teasing. No, but it's great to be back. Uh, happy to be back. Happy to meet Ebru in a cap uh, digital capacity. So it's going to be a good episode. So Ebru is famous for being an amazing interpreting researcher, an interpreting teacher, an interpreter in her own right. Ebru... I've asked you questions before anyone who is listening to this podcast who hasn't heard of Inside Interpreting on YouTube. Go and find Inside Interpreting. There is an excellent interview with Ebru and another one where we have a conversation with an event specialist. But one question that we never asked Ebru was how did you get into interpreting in the first place? Well, like many interpreters, I was lucky, lucky enough to be exposed to more than one language when I was young. So I really loved languages and when the time came to choose uh, a department to study, an area to, to study, um, interpreting was my first choice. At one point I couldn't decide whether I wanted to study political science, which was also you know, a very dear topic to my heart, or interpreting, but then interpreting it was. And so did you always go into interpreting thinking that you would head straight to research or did you, because I know some interpreting researchers go into interpreting and decide straight away, I'm going to research this and others practice for a bit, get annoyed with something and come into research that way. No, not really. I mean, I didn't start out thinking I would also do research on interpreting. I really wanted to work. I started working as an interpreter and I also did an MA in political science. So even there, I wasn't too sure what I wanted to do with my life. But <laughs> uh, starting to work as an interpreter, yeah, that is when I started thinking, you know, interesting things are happening here. It would be interesting to look into this uh, with more detail. And um, studying political science was actually quite helpful because it gave me an understanding of interesting concepts like, you know, ideology, institutional structures, or uh, politics in general. So that was quite helpful when I went back to do a PhD in interpreting studies. And were you able to sort of combine your two fields of study? Did, so did you did you work in, in diplomatic interpreting, let's say, or for politicians, something like that? Um, 
in a way, I did both as a practicing interpreter, but also when I studied um, interpreting as a research topic, it was very helpful to see discourse as part of the larger sociological structure or the discourse that we hear and interpret in interpreting uh, as part of a larger whole. So that was quite helpful. And that's the thing is that I think there's been a lot of talk recently in interpreting research about putting interpreting into context and understanding why it's taking place and who it's taking place for. And it's interesting that you seem to have been thinking in those terms for quite a while. And it seems like there seems to have been a few researchers and the rest of research are just catching up with that idea now. Now, for me, I first came across your work when I was studying for my PhD at Harriet Watt and I came across your 2004 book, De-Stroke Recontextualising Conference Interpreting Interpreters in the Ivory Tower, big question mark. That book seems to have quite a lot of streams of research going in it. Was that, I think that was your, your PhD, which you then turned into a book. Correct, yeah. How did that come about? When, when did you suddenly decide, this is what I'm going to do? Um, so I decided to go back to do a PhD in translation and interpreting studies. And the school of thought that my university followed at Boazic University, was very much focused on contextualizing translation, translators, interpreting and interpreters. Um, so, um, and since I was, you know, in and out of the booth every day, I, I started observing colleagues, I started observing myself, and the PhD basically followed that. So it was about observing what interpreters do in the booth and comparing that with what we say we do. So in a way, it compared what we say with what we do as interpreters. And this is why you get this really interesting mix of a discussion of how interpreters are viewed in the news and how associations talk about interpreting. And then you have this observational study. Now, even in the book, you hint that there's an interesting story behind the fact that you ended up studying a philosophy conference. And I, th I think you even say somewhere that wasn't what you were, where you were planning to go originally. How did you end up studying a philosophy conference, not, I don't know, some big political event? Jonathan, excellent question. Of course, you know, especially working with <laughs> Turkish, um, mm. you know, anything that involves Turkey, think of Turkey-EU relations, is usually high stake, high tension. So I was hoping to observe that kind of a conference, really political with, you know, all kinds of juicy material. No, I couldn't get permission to observe that, that type of a conference. So I ended up getting permission <laughs> to observe a conference on Martin Heidegger. Can you imagine? I mean, oh what boy. political can you what? I mean, of course, there are political aspects to it. But I thought, my goodness, uh, a conference on philosophy, what am I going to find? But uh, luckily enough, um, you know, it, it's there all the time. Interpreters make critical decisions all the time. In political settings, it becomes much more obvious, of course, and sometimes much more provocative, but it's there all the time. So you're right, I was devastated uh, at the beginning, but then it turned out to be quite all right. <laughs> it's kind of funny, every researcher goes looking for juicy data and you go, no, no. <laughs> Just as a, as a little uh, parenthesis, maybe, um, I think Jonathan was kind of alluding to the whole practice searcher paradigm, if you want to call it that, and that um, interpreters who also do interpreting research are very close to their work. Um, do, you, do you find that that sometimes is more of a, 
of a hindrance than than it than it is helpful in in just in research in general or is it is it good to be so close to the object of research i guess if that makes any sense as a question yeah, absolutely i think it's good i think it's good uh alex and of course um the way you present your data should be so that others can criticize you for perhaps being too close if you're too close if you don't make sense or if you're you know pulling your data towards your own hypotheses without evidence without real proof for it um but i hope that i presented the data at least clear enough uh to show where i might have been subjective so it was open to criticism and this is interesting i, I was um researching a, a paper recently which is now coming out soon in the uh, translation interpreting studies journal where i noticed that the response to your book was quite mixed. You had some researchers seeing it as full of real promise, and I think Franz Poorhacker uh, called it part of the uh, the the miracle year for interpreting. And there were there were one or two reviewers who were like it's a single case, we don't have to listen to it. It's just as did did you receive any of that feedback personally, or is it just things that have come out later? Um, I have received it personally too, and it's true. I mean, uh, my observations cannot be generalized across the board. It has its limitations. I only observed one conference. I only observed three interpreters working. That's true. But some of the claims I make can then be tested outside this, you know, limited sphere. And I think others that followed have seen that interpreters make critical decisions not only in the Martin Heidegger and Hannah Arendt uh, context but elsewhere and maybe even more pronouncedly elsewhere so um, you know interpreters most of the defense comes from professional interpreters themselves interpreters don't like to hear that um, some of the decisions we make are actually quite you know quite daring sometimes not totally within the norms we claim we adhere to but that doesn't mean they're bad within that given context professional interpreters sometimes decide to do things that are not always seen as the norms of uh, the profession so um Yeah, defense, yes, I have heard people say, well, this is just them, or these are just, you know, Turkish interpreters. But, you know, deep down, I think anyone who observes interpreters in real life knows that there are many decisions that need to be made every day. Maybe before we dive in deeper, sorry, Jonathan, for, for those who have not read the PhD, I suppose there are a few in the uh, among the listeners, Um Can you, I guess it's difficult to, to summarize it in a few sentences, but can you just give us a few sort of examples of the things that you were looking at or maybe some of the conclusions that you've drawn uh, from your observations? Maybe I can just very briefly summarize what I did. I basically mm -hmm. looked at what outsiders say about interpreting. So, you know, the image that outsiders have of us. And it seems, particularly the, the media everywhere, thinks we are rendering words and they praise us when they believe we 
you know, we're fully faithful to the words of the speaker and they criticize us when they think we're not. The media, if you take a look everywhere, is very, very much focused on loyalty to the word. Interpreters, on the other hand, don't like that at all. We always say, no, not words. We are there to render meanings. Meanings that are intended by the speakers, as intended by the speakers, which is excellent. You know, it takes us away from this a straight jacket of following words, but then we don't take the next step. We don't say, look, we also need to make, because language is fuzzy, communication is fuzzy, each context is unique, each speaker is unique, you know, you can't really access the meaning intended by the speaker. Even the speaker cannot be sure he or she has conveyed what she wanted to or what she intended to say. So, you know, there's fuzziness in language. There's fuzziness in communication. So, we as professional interpreters, we actually negotiate the best possible representation we think this speaker, you know, has just given. So, there, um, there is a discrepancy, right? So, expectations, what we say, and then when you take a look at what we do, you see all the kinds of decisions we make. For instance, in my own data, um, although the norms say that interpreters, you know, they are non-present, they never add, delete, no, interpreters do a lot of things. Interpreters, for instance, seem to have access to a variety of options. They don't only speak in the speaker's first person. They can rephrase sometimes speakers. Sometimes they jump in as interpreters, so they take over the first person, the I in the interpretation, make comments, add things, explain things. Sometimes they, in a way, camouflage their decisions behind the speakers. So they can, in a way, come into their delivery, make amends, make changes, make corrections, and make it all seem like it's the speaker. So there are, you know, a variety of strategies interpreters use every day to deal with the complexity of their task, and they do it very aptly, but they do it. And we need to notice that there is a lot of critical decision-making in simultaneous conference interpreting. And I think it's this tension between what we see and what we do that really comes out in your book and that I think came out in, in a, a later paper that you wrote about agency, although there you seem to be as much criticising the state of research at the time as you were the state of interpreting. What do you think it's doing to interpreters and to interpreting that we say we do one thing and in real life we do something else? Is that damaging us in any, in any way? Um, yeah, I did criticize that a lot back in uh, the late 1990s. That's when I wrote the PhD, uh, mainly because back then especially, conference interpreting um, kept itself very detached from the kinds of theoretical approaches that emerged in translation studies, in community interpreting, and the rhetoric was always that, well, we render meanings, and so, you know, we're different. We're not like court interpreters, we're not like uh, hospital interpreters, uh, and I did criticize uh, the discourse then. It's changed somewhat now, but even uh, today, I think professional interpreters... Um, tend to remain invisible. They want to remain invisible 
behind this discourse that has worked quite well until now. I just feel like, given the current constraints, the current challenges, it is going to work against us. Maybe it's already worked against us and we need to come forward. We need to be more assertive, um, you know, make everyone recognize the kind of expertise human interpreters use, involve. Um, so I think it's working against us, especially given remote interpreting, potential AI, etc. Definitely something we might want to get in, into maybe <laughs> a little bit later. But um, is, is this, yeah, I guess this is what you're referring to by the, the ivory tower part in your, in your PhD, although I think there are different aspects to it. So there's a little bit of, I guess, elitism or, or ivory tower when it comes to conference interpreting, certainly, you know, to to say we're different from, as you said, I think court interpreter or public service or medical or whatever it may be, um, and that that's harmful sort of within the interpreting community, but also sort of as opposed to clients. It, I think it's also the, the famous phrase, I'm just the interpreter, things like that, that are also <laughs> yeah, kind of harmful and, and not really true, as you've just explained, I think. Um, yeah, that was more of a comment than a question. Sorry. But <laughs> are you training to be an academic already, Alex? But the, this, yes, I think so. this, I'm just the interpreter, have you ever looked at why you know are there reasons for interpreters hiding behind this we're just the interpreter we are invisible thing mm. i think i i mean i have tied it to the discourse of the outsiders saying because the outside world has this misperception i would say that we can you know translate words uh, just like they come we can render them into other languages it's in a way um you know, getting closer to them. Because one aspect of my research I didn't mention was that whenever professional conference interpreters refer to what they do in context, so for instance, when they tell anecdotes, or, you know, if you read their memoirs, they're full of moments of critical decision-making, right? But it's only when we talk about interpreting in a decontextualized manner, in an idealized world, we seem to bring it closer to the outsider's uh, expectations. And what I'm saying is, well, let's not do this anymore. Maybe we should take a step in the opposite direction, bring them closer to our reality. What I was thinking of, when you, when you mentioned that the decontextualized aspect of things, uh, whether that's also happening in interpreter training, whether mm. that whether that's also a, a context basically uh, where we perpetuate some of those um, things, you know, like interpreter invisibility and neutrality, whether or whether that has maybe already changed in in training, or maybe that's just my experience might be difficult um, different um, elsewhere. But I could imagine that training uh, has a certain role to play in. You know, perpetuating things like the conduit mod model and, and stuff like that. But I don't know if, if you've looked into that in your research at all. Yes, I have. And you're right, Alex. Uh, to some extent, it does. Uh, it That is also changing gradually and slowly. But to some extent, it does. And to some extent, we all understand it. Of course, you know, we don't want interpreters to, you know, change things, omit but we want interpreters to take responsibility of what they do, right? Not hide behind this very broad and in a way 
senseless phrase. You know, I just said what the speaker said, or I'm just mm. there uh, transferring meanings. On the contrary, I think it's very important that interpreters also become very reflexive about their own decision making. I said this for this reason, but you know, what kind of an effect did it have? Have I perhaps excluded some of the audience or have I perhaps excluded some of what the speaker might have said? So this kind of reflexive thinking, I think, should definitely be a part of interpreting pedagogy. And as you said, because you mentioned um, interpreters' biographies or autobiographies, um, I think the most interesting stories are probably stories about situations where interpreters have made let's say, bold decisions, <laughs> bold, um, yes. you know, uh, to maybe adapt something to avoid, you know, World War Three, just to exaggerate that just a little but, bit. <laughs> but just jumping in here real quick, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, you know, those stories where the interpreters, that the interpreters are then starting to avoid World War Three. those are usually stories of triumph, right? It's where you made a bold decision and then it kind of worked out exactly in in a positive way i think the moment i was just trying to reflect as you guys were speaking when have i said oh i'm just the interpreter i just said what the speaker says it's usually in moments of criticism right so when when somebody says mm. oh this wasn't quite and I'm like, it's a defensive yeah. mechanism is that something that you found as well Ibru? yes in, in yeah Yes, most of the time it's a defensive mechanism, absolutely. Um, and it's also, in a way, um, how shall I say, a, a preemptive defense. So even without mm -hmm. uh, you know, a reason, we tend to fall back on that as our main narrative. But that also hides our expertise, right? It, it makes us look, in a way, quite mechanical. And with all the AI and all this uh, software coming up, to replace. it looks like we are easily replaceable, but we are not. In effect, what I'm trying to say with this uh, book is that this critical decision-making is not for no reason. It's because human language and human communication is fuzzy, it's complex. As interpreters, we need to gauge what the speaker says, how the context is, whether the audience is reacting or not. You know, we need to filter in accents, we need to see and read faces. There are so many factors Uh, and we're not we're hiding all this when we just keep repeating we're just the messenger you know we're just the interpreter i think what interpreters can do would be to perhaps read some research research results and then to have one or two short catchy phrases with which they can explain their expertise to the client, not in an overpowering or overwhelming way, but in a way that sort of raises an awareness about what a human interpreter can bring to the table. Something that seems to work, certainly in Scotland, is when clients hear the kind of war stories that we tell each other, they get more interested in what we do. And I remember someone asking me, I was doing a presentation for some business people once, and so I told a couple of war stories because this is what you do when you have a talk to business people. And someone came up to me and said, I didn't realize interpreting was actually interesting. Hmm. Absolutely. And it, it makes me wonder how many other people don't realize that interpreting is interesting precisely because, you know, what do you do when the speaker accidentally makes a joke which is massively offensive to the audience that they're speaking to? Um, you know, what do you do if the, the, the classic one of the speaker tells a joke that is a play on words that only works in one language? 
you have to find something. I would say, well, we should think about what we should tell clients. Um, but I definitely think we should be saying more uh, at the right time with the right you know, type of phraseology uh, to make mm. them understand why we are asking for certain things, what we're bringing to the table. And it works. I've tried it a couple of times. My colleagues were a bit hesitant. They said, you know, let's not, you know, bore the client with the detail. No, people are interested, as you said, Jonathan. People really uh, start to appreciate what we do and try to help us when they understand the kind of constraints uh, we're dealing with. I actually wanted to say something but I've forgotten as well about um, <laughs> well, the tech stuff is um, knocking us off that that, that's not a metaphor for interpreting yeah I need to write everything down <laughs> ah yeah I just wanted to uh, confirm I think what you said or I actually asked um, the two of you who work as freelance interpreters also whether um, you would confirm that during the coronavirus pandemic um, being just an interpreter was probably a bit of a, an economic death sentence Because you had to do, I guess, a lot of client education, you know, coming up with new strategies for your work. And so you definitely could not be just the interpreter. Um, exactly. I, I totally agree, Alex. And I think many interpreters have shown that they have what is called adaptive expertise, right? They've adapted quite quickly. Um, and I, I mean, I did read interesting research where apparently in the first few months everybody was a bit uh, surprised shocked but quickly people picked up and uh, started to um, familiarize themselves with the new technology new platforms and I think many interpreters especially perhaps a slightly younger generation were quite quick to adapt I think also you had to adapt how you dealt with clients because Certainly here in the UK, when you have an agency job, you can usually trust that everything is organised, with one or two exceptions. And so you don't necessarily need to ask for things. And even when you're consulting, if you already have a relationship with the suppliers, you don't need to, you know, if it's the same AV company that I always work with, I don't need to ask them for certain pieces of equipment because I know they'll be there because they're good. When you're working remotely, you have to, be, I've had uh, consulted on a couple of remote interpreting projects And you have to ask a lot more questions. And I found I had to be a lot more forceful is the wrong word, but I had to be a lot more definite with what I was asking people to do and definite with this is the deadline when this needs to be done by because it won't work otherwise. Did you find that, Alex G, that you you, you had to be a little bit more direct than you than you were before? Yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that you got asked a lot more questions than before because you you basically had to be the technician and the interpreter at that point and before that I would kind of always you know bring the technicians on board and then they would take care of those questions so I was basically trying to be like a two-in-one but then on the flip side it's also kind of like you had to take a silver glove approach to the clients because it was all completely new to them and they didn't just sit around doing trainings and workshops on the different types of RSI platforms and, you know, what, what you can and can't do. So you don't want to kind of, like, overwhelm, I guess is the right word, them with all that knowledge. You know, you kind of have to, like, pick and choose what you want to present in the right uh, convincing tone, I, I guess is uh, 
I guess I'm going to say it like that, yeah. <laughs> it's the convincing tone that I wonder if we haven't thought about as much in interpreting. Now, mm. your research was in conference interpreting, Ebright. I'm aware that you've got, um, there's been Shader Aslan's research on consecutive conference interpreting, uh, Claudia Monicelli's research. There's been a whole lot of research on conference interpreting with quite similar findings to yours. Are you aware of similar research in other... I have to be careful which word I use because of a recent paper, other interpreting contexts that have found similar things, or is this just something that conference interpreters need to learn? Um, in other contexts, um, for instance, as you said, Claudio Monicelli in the parliamentary context, um, and Morven Beaton as well, in looking at basically the European Parliament's web-streamed um, interpretation data, they have all shown interesting things, like Morven Beaton has shown that um, at the European Parliament, interpreters tend to reinforce uh, the institutional discourse, right? replacing certain regional or more um, individual aspects of the discourse with the European we, saying we for everything, where the speakers were actually refer referring to their individual or regional eye or um, Monacelli has shown in the Italian parliament how interpreters knowingly or even unknowingly uh, tone down threatening um, tones or speeches. So uh, there's very interesting research coming up from conference interpreting, but to tell you the truth, this all started in community interpreting, mm. where, of course, such uh, decisions are easier to um, to be found, first of all, because of the settings they're in, and also because of the stakes involved. But um, we've shown over and over again that they also uh, occur in conference interpreting. Is that something that you observe on a more general level, maybe also recently that there's more, let's say, cross-pollinization between the different settings, I think you would say, so conference, uh, public service or community interpreting, and potentially also sign language interpreting. I mean, Jonathan was just speaking at the uh, EFSLE conference recently. Do you see more of that happening? Because it seems to be beneficial, uh, certainly to the ivory tower of conference interpreting, if we can call it yes, that. Yes, absolutely. I do see it. I, I, I certainly do see it. See it. The cognitive side of things, cognitive approaches, psycholinguistic approaches are still very strong in conference interpreting and not as strong in these other uh, types of interpreting, but uh, sociological approaches have also become very, very strong in conference interpreting uh, compared to 1990s when really they just did not exist at all. And I think, you know, to, to explain to those who don't have a research background, it's a move from asking how do interpreters do what they do because it's hard to what are interpreters actually doing? Um, and what's the social, you know, what's going on in this place? Um, a lot of interpreters, a lot of professional interpreters recently have begun to talk about, you know, uh, how their clients see them as valuable and how to convince clients that they're worth their money and why clients buy interpreting it. And we've had all this marketing stuff and it's interesting because that mirrors what research started doing from the mid 2000s in conference interpreting was looking at, well, what is the interpreter doing at this conference? You know, why are they there? Who are they there for? What is their, you know, how are the people, and all of this kind of context-based stuff that 
really grew from the mid 2000s in confidence interpreting was there in community interpreting in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I joked to Evsley Conference, as I've been joking for years, that if you want to know what uh, conference interpreters are going to be discussing in five years' time, you should ask what sign language interpreters are discussing now. Except it's not a joke, right? <laughs> It's actually but Alex, I, I have a question to you. Um, I remember some years ago, the European Parliament um, started uh, giving these introductory sessions to interpreting. I think Skik does it as well. Have you been in those uh, types of meetings where they try to familiarize the users of interpreting services with what interpreters do? Is it helpful? Um, I, th I think so. Yeah, yeah. So my, my uh, colleague Jose Turi from DG Skik has been doing this for years with a few other colleagues as well. And usually it's tied to preparing an upcoming presidency. So the rotating EU presidency, then you would get a few people in the room who will be chairing meetings under that presidency. So when, when a given country um, sort of gets to run the daily business in the EU, to, to make put it very simply. Uh, and yes, I think it's, it's very... Um, it's very effective because people can try out interpreting for themselves. So they, they see that it's, of course, a difficult thing to do in the first place. And they see that it's even difficult uh, when the speaker is sort of speaking in a non-optimal way. So too too quickly or just mumbling, stuff like that, ruffling with, with papers. So um, Jose and, and the colleagues are really trying to demonstrate the difference you can make if you put a little bit of thought into proper public speaking and just being prepared and involving the interpreters and all that kind of thing. And I think it's it's very effective, as I said. I think the problem really is scaling that because we are working potentially for so many speakers and, and, and quote-unquote normal participants that you, you can't do that for everyone, of course. That's kind of the, the downside to the whole thing. And of course, you can record these sessions and you can, you know, some of that is on YouTube, for example, you can watch it. But I think it's much more effective if you actually sit there and then I think it really sinks in. But again, the, the, the problem really is um, not being able to, to scale that up, <laughs> unfortunately. And it's, it's, it's much more difficult or even impossible um, right now with the um, you know restrictions due to the coronavirus pandemic because these this used to be real life sessions and I guess you could do something like that uh, in an online context as well but uh, again probably more effective if you actually have people in the same room but I don't know if any associations do that for example or uh, if that's really sort of specific to the EU context I wonder how transferable that is to commercial clients as well um, it's often not until the end of an interpreting session. I, I haven't noticed it during lockdown, but I have noticed clients come up at the end of a session who hadn't used and hadn't worked with interpreters before and say, oh, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder, you know, how do we transfer that kind of experience to commercial clients? So this might be the only interpreting conference they go to that year or that decade even. Well, I think it's quite possible to do it uh, when you're giving a briefing to an organizer or to a group of speakers, even with RSI platforms. It's, it's enough if you just speak in their language, you know, the language you share with them, and then ask them to repeat it in the same language. And then if you go too fast or if you mumble a little or, you know, close your microphone so that they can't hear and 
they really do grasp it when they repeat the same thing in the same language. They start understanding what it means to speak on top of another speaker rather than just listening. So I think they are, these kinds of solutions are doable. We just need to think a little more about how we can integrate that into a briefing. A briefing shouldn't be just a one-way briefing of the interpreter. I think it should also be the other way, the interpreter briefing the client. I like that a lot because certainly the European institutions have been publishing these tips for speakers for probably decades now um, with, you know, best practice and, and how to speak probably basically in, in multilingual meetings with uh, interpreting. But it, it always comes across as a bit didactic. And uh, that's because it, because it is, you know, because we really want to get the most out of it. But but I like this sort of creative approach or more, more interactive, almost role play like um, approach. I think that's definitely something we could we could work with. But uh, yeah, it comes down to the individual interpreter and certainly the, the consultant interpreters, I suppose. Have you ever done anything like this, Alex, with your clients? <laughs> A little bit of role play or <laughs> we've never done the role play situation. <laughs> yeah. I think we've definitely done the briefings. Um, in my own experience, it's always been easier to I mean you do the briefing ahead of time, obviously when you like Ibra was saying, when you when you get the briefing, you give the briefing. But I feel like the clients are always more receptive after the conference for the next one, because then you can actually say Look, like I was pointing out, this and this speaker was speaking without a headset or without a microphone, so it was very tricky. I'm sure you heard it as well because everybody hears the same sound in RSI, which is kind of the the, the blessing and the curse. Um, and then you can say, listen, I know we all heard the same thing, so it was very tricky to hear. So next time, as we said, we're happy to send you a headset or, or a microphone. You know, we are happy to provide that for a fee, blah, blah, blah. So you can... Um, definitely do those things, but we've never done the role play per se. But I think that's an interesting. Uh, th that would, I guess, would be like a startling experience for the clients. But because <laughs> of that, it probably might be even more um, impressive and memorable. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like if the, if they're open to doing that, I think it would really leave an impression. So about oh four or five years ago now, uh, I was invited to teach at a seven-day seminar on Bible translation and church interpreting. And these Bible translators, you know, these are the kind of guys who were trained so that if needed, they could go into an area where no one outside of that area spoke the language, learn the language and translate the help the people translate the entire Bible into it. So these are smart guys, you know, smart guys and ladies linguistics PhDs coming out their ears and stuff. And Sari Hawkinen and I decided to do a practical session on what interpreting was like because we realised that many of them wouldn't have experienced it or would only have experienced interpreting as a listener. So we did some day one exercises. We did um, counting and got them to shadow us where we were counting. Then we did some random number shadowing and when they realised that they had to stay a certain number of numbers behind us, they looked like rabbits in headlights. <laughs> and then we got them to do, we, we wanted to do monolingual interpreting, so we came up with this exercise where, where we would say something semi-technical in, in language that they knew well, but then they had to interpret that simultaneously as if they were explaining it to an eight-year-old. And the feedback that we got from all of these people with PhDs, and I think a couple of them were professors, was, interpreting is hard. We were like... Yeah, go yes. for it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, 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 
the discussions for the rest of the week completely changed because rather than talking about things from a theoretical point of view, when we were talking precisely in some cases about the decisions interpreters make and the conflict that you get when you're interpreting in a situation where, you know, if you've got your family members in the audience or you've got people that you really know well in the audience, that is going to shape how you interpret whether you like it or not. When we're talking about once they've experienced what it's like to try and interpret something, we could then have a much more fruitful discussion. And I like this idea of, you know, do a bit of role play, get them even just to do basic shadowing. I know shadowing's a supposedly Slightly controversial, controversial <laughs> exercise, but yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a good introduction to what it is that we're doing. And I wonder if clients might be a bit more nice <laughs> if they, if they realize, you know, you, you have situations where you have to explain to a client, uh, you know, if this video is being played at the conference, no, you cannot record it with a tin can and a piece of string as your microphone. <laughs> but they don't see why until you maybe make them try to interpret it back. And I don't know how you feel, but I feel like the clients and organizers are now more open um, to a dialogue with us, given that they also feel a little little perhaps um, frustrated or anxious uh, working with us in online meetings. I feel like they are more open to hearing what we have to say. I see Alex nodding heavily there. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with what you're saying. I think it's because, and I was talking to some colleagues of mine about this, I think it's because they kind of see us in this dual role as um, technical consultants and as the interpreters, whereas before it was split between the tech guys or girls and us. Um, And I've actually known of some colleagues here in Germany who said, like, they've really taken a very stern stance on the, the technical side of it. And they said, if you don't do it this way, we're not going to interpret this particular speaker. And mm. it's really worked well for them. They said, we're going to provide the headset. We're going to send it to them for, like, whatever, 20, 15, 20 euros. But if they don't use it, we're not going to interpret them. And it, the, the clients really respond very well. And I think previously that wouldn't have worked. I think, like you were saying, they're taking us more seriously now. As well they should, because we had, do have a lot more experience working in, in these online interpreting settings than mm. probably any client, because this is what we do. And, you know, um, but I agree. Uh, yeah, f- I f- fully agree. Is this, because you, you wrote a paper in 2011 about uh, agency and conference interpreting, is it still a myth? If you were to rewrite that paper today, because the answer in 2011 was conference interpreters still don't talk about the decisions that they're making. If you were to write a follow-up to that paper now, 10 years later, would you come to the same conclusion? Or do you think we've remote interpreting in the pandemic has suddenly allowed us to discover who we really are? Um, I think it has allowed us to see... um what we're doing, but I'm not sure if it's found its way to our rhetoric yet. I do think, though, that there is hope for change because, you know, the things we've just talked about, the fact that their interpreters have been very proactive, that they are consulting clients, in a way I find it quite paradoxical that remote interpreting, which actually makes us even more invisible, right? It makes us completely invisible is in a way provoking us to become more visible. So it it is a strange situation. And I remember there was a fear when all of this moved to remote. In fact, 
when Remote was still growing and like Barry Olson had only appeared in 20 different podcasts <laughs> um, there, there was this fear that remote interpreting would render interpreters almost like kind of just people who had to be on tap and we would lose our power and we would lose our voice literally and actually yeah you're right it, it's been the opposite and it, it may, I wonder what else we're afraid of that's actually going to be for our good but, you know, I don't want to get too political, but I think it definitely depends on the market segment that you're operating in right now. Because there are mm. people who just have to be on tap. There are people who have been fully commodified. Even in this RSI world, whether that's worked out for them or not, I have no idea. You know, it might be the best year of the career. Who knows? Um, but I think what you're saying is true if that is the market segment that we operate in. Does that make yeah. sense? Yep, Definitely. Yeah, it, it has made me ask the question. I asked, no one's answered this question, so maybe everybody will, because she's a professor. Um, <laughs> now that we're all doing RSI anyway, I can't see any practical difference between, for example, a court interpreter having to drop into simultaneous because the judge won't shut up, or a medical interpreter having to drop into simultaneous because the doctor's still talking and it's a seven and a half minute appointment. I can't see any difference between those two in between a conference interpreter who in many markets might be getting paid, I don't know, five, six times as much for delivering simultaneous interpreting because their conference needs simultaneous. Um, am I, is it a remote interpreting reducing the inequalities in interpreting or is it just making them worse? I'm not sure, Jonathan. I don't think it's making it any better, to tell you the truth. I've worked as an accredited court interpreter in Canada uh, because I lived there for three years recently and there was no market uh, as conference interpreter mm. with Turkish. And I was paid basically one-tenth of what I earned as a conference interpreter doing the same thing, you know, sometimes even doing more difficult things than I did as a conference interpreter. So I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, we are doing the same thing. In fact, court interpreting is very much a part and parcel of conference interpreting when it's done in the institutional setting, right? The European Court of Human Rights, for instance, that is like the conference interpreter's uh, domain, whereas a normal criminal court, we think of it as very different. No, it's not. But what we really need to do is to pull up uh, the standards and especially the fees in these other areas. I think conference should be the setting that, or rather the remuneration that all these interpreters should be heading towards because it really is extremely unfair uh, to be treated and to be paid so differently while the task itself is very, very similar and sometimes even more difficult. But then isn't the issue that it's being that one is being regulated by the private market and one is being regulated by the by the, the government Absolutely. or the authorities yeah. or the public offices of, of whatever, course. whatever? Because I of mean course. technically even in Germany if you go to court or if you go to any public authority and you're being booked in a private capacity, I could charge a thousand euros for that, you know, for like a ten minute appointment if somebody were to pay me. Whereas if they book it through the, the official systems, there's hourly rates, you know, there's like general standardized fees. And again, in the private market, when it comes to conference interpreting, however you want, you want to define it, um, there's, there's no, 
<laughs> there's no official regulation. I mean, there's like unofficial kind of standards that everybody has agreed upon, more or less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really between you and the client. And I think that's kind of what the difference in remuneration is. I fully agree with what Ibra and Jonathan are saying that sometimes it's much more difficult to go into court settings, especially court settings, I think. Um, But until we detach the remuneration system from the the governmental systems or you know however it's it's laid out with the framework agreements with certain agencies or whatever it may be in your in your individual countries i'm not sure that's going to work out because there's always going to be somebody who's going to do it yeah yeah but that's the, the that's the main issue in all of freelancing right <laughs> there's always somebody who does it cheaper yeah to to go with the political science argument i think conference interpreting did a really good job in the past hundred and two years we are now, um, <laughs> in the past 102 years of attaching itself to the political elite. Mm-hmm. So, you know, conference interpreting, Alex Drexel didn't hear this, he's acting in a purely personal capacity, but conference interpreting Indeed. in the EU is a government-paid, well, supranational government-paid service. It's not necessarily so much that it's being paid by government. I think part of it is the... The, the status of the profession so you know most conference interpreters that I know especially those who are under a certain age I'm not going to name that age because I will get in trouble most of us under a certain age have you know master's degrees we've been to good universities um, some of us are working class Scotsmen but you know th- there's this fear <laughs> of you, you, you've you been trained in a, a, a this kind of a university so you must be worth this amount of money in some countries public service interpreters and community interpreters don't even need training or mm. they 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 are exa- they get into the profession by passing an exam rather than by doing mm. a two-year master's so some of it is conference interpreting's done a really good job of building its own image and i wonder if there's some image work to be done in other parts of interpreting so that governments can say well actually yes it is a good use of taxpayers money to pay community interpreters a decent wage mm. But I do think that argument falls sort of flat when you're talking about employed interpreters, like, for example, people at the European Union or, you know, the United Nations, people employed for the German government, just to name a few, because if you paid them the the federally mandated minimum fee for court interpreters in Germany, they would be loaded. So you can't do that because there is just too much demand. Like if we paid Alex the hourly rate that a court interpreter would get in Germany, he would have several houses in the Côte d'Azur. He would have multiple mansions in Italy. He would already be like somewhere in Bali retiring at this point, you know, just because of the sheer amount. And I think you you have to, again, I, I'm kind of like making it more complicated, but I feel like this is a very differentiated approach that we need to take because employed is different than freelance and freelance this is different than freelance that and freelance in this country is different than in that country. And I think I agree with the general sentiment that you're 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 giving, Jonathan, but then it's it's so complicated. <laughs> it's also complicated. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If he got paid what court interpreters get paid in some parts of the UK, he'd be living in a cardboard box. Mm. Um, but but the, this thing is that there's there's a there's a, a whole lot of differentiation. Some of it, I guess, economically you have to have, and politically you have to have because you'll always you're always going to get paid more to be in a room where they're negotiating a multi-million pound deal 
than you're going to be given for doing the same AGM that they've had for the past 50 years with the same guy interrupting with the same point. Sorry, am I the only person who's done that meeting? Same agenda, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, these kind of, the same, the AGM where you know that the same guy is going to put his hand up at the same time and ask the same question, because that's what he always does. Um, there's always going to be some differentiation there, but it, I, I, you know, I, I joked to people that it's, it's kind of sad that if there was a conference on uh, uses of camel dung, everyone would know that it would need two interpreters for every combination. Yet, a murder case can sometimes only have one interpreter for the whole day. And you're like, that's not right. And it's discrepancies like that, that where true. we know that that's not right. I'm not saying that, you know, if you're doing camel dung, you only need one interpreter. I'm saying that if you're doing a murder <laughs> case, you need two. It's oddly specific, <laughs> isn't it? Um, but, yeah. yeah. I, I actually had one more thing that I wanted to have uh, Evro's uh, input on uh, because, and, and it's it's kind of a nice segue because we're doing segues here to the, to the next episode um, because I wanted to talk a little bit about science communication and um, what your experience is, Evro, in, in trying to get the word out uh, more specifically to practitioners. Do you find it difficult to, you know, to, to get those findings out to i don't know associations or just you know practicing interpreters in general are they open to that or do they really adhere to their you know traditions or, or traditional concepts of what interpreting is supposed to be and uh, is not supposed to be um it's not too difficult but i feel like there are not enough bridges. I mean, we go to conferences, scientific conferences, we talk to other researchers, you know, which who agree or disagree, but there are not that many platforms where researchers can talk to uh, practicing interpreters um, or to associations. Only if associations invite researchers, maybe. And what you're doing is great. But other than that, I I feel like they're two different circles and mm. they don't necessarily communicate. Even, even in Turkey, for instance, um, I do give talks, but not necessarily to my colleagues, more to students and more to academicians, but um, rarely to colleagues. So perhaps we need more platforms where... And researchers also need to change. I think uh, we need to be, we need to make our research findings more uh, appealing and more easily understandable. Perhaps avoiding uh, terms and terminology that might be a bit, you know, unfamiliar to the uh, general audience. But but I think. Um it's, it almost sounds like that the research should be more appealing, but I suppose you mean in terms of how you present it. Because, of course, sometimes oh, yeah. the findings can be, Absolutely. as we've said, quite controversial or, uh, Absolutely. you know, upsetting Absolutely. even. That's what I meant, yeah. of course. But, <laughs> Making uh, it appealing in terms mm. of presentation, not in terms of content. <laughs> I, I think also there's a battle because anyone who writes an academic paper knows that the reviewers and the editors have to sign it off. For them to sign it off, it has to look as... And I'm, I'm having this conversation with a practitioner. I'm helping write a research paper at the moment. The reviewers and the editors have to sign it off. For them to sign it off, it has to look a certain way. For the professionals to read it, it has to look a different way. Absolutely. And they, it's, it's difficult because um, as much as I hate using translation as a metaphor, it's an active translation where mm -hmm. you get a paper that was written highly technically, sometimes going into 
debates that practitioners aren't going to care about and don't need to care about. So, you know, they mm. don't need to know, you know, what's the ideal unit of analysis to fix this problem. They don't care. They don't need to care. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if the if that bit of the discussion puts them off, they might not read the rest of the paper. So I think it's um, John Benjamins and a couple of other publishers have got this platform called Kudo, I think it's called. It's not the... Um, not the uh, platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, oh, it's called Kudos, and the idea is that you can write like a, a, a normal person's summary of your paper. Oh. And it's an interesting challenge because some papers are technical papers that we're doing to resolve some issue, and other papers are really controversial, and you think, how do I write about this <laughs> in a way that's going to get the people to read it who need to read it? <laughs> yeah, but it, that's the thing, right? Because... Um, I, I I'm I actually want to place the onus as well a little bit on practitioners um, in in that we all have to understand that you know university is not the end of or whatever your training was that the initial training is not the end but it's it's actually just the beginning and it's the whole you know lifelong learning blah blah but you know it's it's true and uh, I think even a busy professional should should try at least to make some time for that because I think you know platforms do exist and there are ways of going out and, and finding out about research. Um, it could be easier probably, but I think it's also you know, up to everyone to to seek out that, that information. Otherwise, it's, it's a little bit difficult, you know, uh, because mm. researchers can only do so much, um, especially if they're also practitioners. And uh, Can I appeal to researchers, though, um, find out the guidelines of whichever outlet you're writing for and as far as possible get an open access copy online. I've started using a service called Sock Archive and it's not an archive of socks. It's a social <laughs> science research archive. Mm. And if you chat nicely to the editors, I know some very friendly editors who will even make you an approved what's called post print. Mm. You can make your papers available to everyone on there. Not only does it increase your citations, let's not go into why that's a good thing <laughs> uh, or a good thing, but yeah. um, it also means that like, so there was some stuff I wrote recently that was kind of controversial I never do controversial stuff um, but I wrote a, I wrote a paper recently that was kind of controversial less controversial when Jemina Napier and Daniel Gilles agreed with me but they'd written something hey, before you know, humble bragging. but well, they, they, they wrote before I did and I didn't realise I almost got myself in trouble um, but so because I knew that was controversial and because I predicted ahead of time people would misunderstand it I'm negotiated with the editor to get an open access copy online so when people said, you said such and such, I could say, actually, it's always the same page, you know, read page six of this paper. This, So this this is something that researchers can do. And I think it would be much more appealing to professionals to go and read research if they knew there was one place they, they could go and type in interpreting and it was all there. The problem is, is that there's so many repositories right now and so many search tools that it's difficult to find stuff so unless you know what you're doing. Yes. So it would be good if we could get interpreting researchers onto SOC Archive and just upload everything there. It's free, but, it's open source. Yeah. But even social media, I mean, certainly on linguistics Twitter, Twitter where I hang out quite a bit, you, you, you actually quite often see authors who say, um, look, I published this paper and they, they might give a, a short summary, you know, in a thread or maybe just a few tweets and trying to make it more approachable. And they ver- very often will say, hey, if you're a student or if you're just interested in this paper, let me know. I'm happy to send you a copy. So um, even outside of the traditional channels, it's very often possible to to have access to, yeah, to, to research and to find out more about that. 
Yeah, Adam Shembrey is a great example of that. Yeah, for example. One, sign language. One, one, again. <laughs> yeah, sign language. What am I going to say sign language? Um, seriously, just listen to sign language interpreters. You know what they're doing. And Ebru, of course. Um, and um, I was going to ask you, Ebru, this has been quite a deep episode at times. If there's kind of one big question that you, or a couple of big questions you think professional interpreters should be thinking about now to improve perhaps how they relate to clients or to give them a better future with the rise of AI and remote interpreting, what would those big questions be? What should we be thinking about? Ooh, what or what are you thinking about thinking right now? About? What, are, what are you working on? That, mm, that that's be, a good question that too. That might be easier to answer. <laughs> <laughs> what am I thinking about? Oh, well, um, I'm, I'm doing an interesting piece of research on prediction, you know, I'm really interested in what makes human interpreters interesting, and prediction is one of them. Um, so I'm, you know, writing a paper on prediction. But what should be on our minds? I think what should be on our minds is first of all, as interpreters, how can we maximize our quality? I think this is becoming really, really. It's always been critical. But given all these changes and technological advances, I think it's going to be very important for teams of interpreters to provide really high service and consistent quality. So perhaps, you know, we should be thinking about preparing uh, in advance even more effectively as a team, not individually, but as a team. I also think it would be very interesting to think about how we can communicate our value much better, more effectively to the client. So these are things that I think should be on our minds. And we already talked a little about them, but I think we really need to sit down and think more about what makes us as human interpreters different, valuable, and how can we convey that to our client. So those are the things on my mind. And um, I, I've learned a lot from this conversation. And I think there's so much more we can do. So did we. And, and, and I like episodes where we give uh, listeners a little bit of homework, I guess, you know, some um, food for thought, food for thought, definitely. I think we always have that. But you know, even some practical homework going out and, and maybe seeking out some research or uh, looking for a, an upcoming uh, publication uh, that we will be talking about in a future episode, just to uh, give a little <laughs> bit of a teaser. But um, spoiler, thank you so much everyone, for coming on the show. And I uh, I, I mean, I, I asked the question about science communication with a bit of an agenda, of course, because that it's something that, that we find really important here at Troublesome Turps. And that's good. Why that's that's so nice why we have Jonathan on board who is sort of quite connected to research and can point us to interesting people like like you. Uh, so we would encourage listeners, I think, to you know take a, a closer look at the research that's out there. And that helps us, I think, you know, rethink uh, some of the traditions that we, I guess, carry around with us in, in our profession. So thank you for uh, helping us with that. And uh, with that. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, see you and talk to you in the next episode. Bye.